and welcome to Season 9 of Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Can you believe it? Season 9. It really feels like just yesterday, although in reality it's been almost four years to the day, since I sat down in a fort I created in my Los Angeles garage to record the very first episode. An episode I was certain that no one was going to listen to. But here we are, four years, nearly 200 episodes, and well over 6 million downloads later, here we are at Season 9. And we're going to kick off this season with a very special episode. I've been teasing this special for some time now, and I'm quite anxious to finally dive into it. So without further hesitation, welcome to the Season 9 premiere, First Hand Responder Stories. Tonight's first terrifying tale takes us to the state of Wyoming. The following was submitted by Jeremiah in the Cowboy State. Hey Derek, this is Jeremiah. This is for the first responders submissions. In about 2014, 15, somewhere in there, I was a police officer in Laramie, Wyoming, and my partners and I got called to an alarm at an old theater, the Griffin Theater, G-R-Y-P-H-O-N, I believe. And it was just an alarm at the stage, the interior. We got these alarms quite a bit. So I was the first one on scene. My partner and I went around the exterior of the building, and we were jiggling all the doors, and they were all locked. All the exterior street side doors were secured. So we requested a key holder arrive, and let us inside the building. Once the key holder arrived, we went to the main entrance and he unlocked the door and we cleared the building from the inside. As Soon as I went inside, it just had a weird electric feeling. And I'd been in this theater dozens and dozens of times. So we were clearing all the hallways out and we saved the stage area for last. And we went to the stage area to the theater area cleared out all the aisles of the chairs and we got onto the stage and I was facing the stairs and the chairs and my partner was facing the other way. Our sergeant was facing the stairwell that came up behind the stage. As I'm looking up in the seats on the top balcony, second row, there was a distinct head of a child, probably eight to 12 years old that poked up and popped down. So I alerted my partner and my sergeant to this, and we went up to the balcony area. There was one entrance in, one entrance out. That's it. You had to climb all the way up the stairs, go up a small ladder to the small door area to get to the side where I saw this kid. My partner and I cleared this entire area, and it was probably only 15 chairs, so it didn't take us long at all. We double-checked, triple-checked, and noticed that the door, when we opened it, was locked. We got in even though the door was locked, but it was locked. So there was nobody there. So we come back out, and we go talk to the key holder and tell him we didn't find anybody inside. He said, as we were in there, about half an hour, because it's a pretty big area, that a person came running out the front door 
and they were wearing all white and they were wearing wooden clogs and they ran right past him. We didn't hear anything. These are old doors. We would have heard someone opening the doors from the inside because they creak and they crack and they pop. But we didn't hear anything while we were inside and the doors were closed behind us as we went in. And he said this guy walked, ran right out in front of him in a big white long gown with wooden clogs and he went down the street. We searched the area for another 20 minutes. We didn't find anybody. And then my sergeant ended up posting up there all night watching in between other calls. And we just had a weird feeling all night that somebody was watching us whenever we were around that building. So hope you have a good time. Enjoy the warm weather there in California. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you, Jeremiah. Stories like this that involve real people are some of the scariest stories I've ever played on the show. If you think about it, aliens, ghosts, cryptids, only a few have ever been accused of taking a human life. Where people, on the other hand, it's no secret that we are by far the most dangerous animal out there. Now the encounter itself sounds like a squatter was possibly spooked. He tossed on some costume pieces that he found backstage and made a beeline for the front door, no doubt hoping to avoid a ride in a cruiser. But I've never been to Laramie. I don't know if they have a homeless population. I also don't know that this particular theater has costumes and props laying around for the man to take. But given the circumstances of the encounter, it really does seem like the most logical of explanations. Thank you again, Jeremiah, for sharing your story. Now our next entry is one from an anonymous source. This story was submitted from the state of Kansas. Yes, I'm calling about the law enforcement stories or first responder stories. About a year and a half ago, I was on patrol. I live in a small county in Kansas, very rural community. And I was out patrolling one night around 2 o'clock in the morning had a individual that I had for speed and made my stop and approached the vehicle and kind of talked to him for a minute and walked back and ran all his information and then went back up to the vehicle and he expressed interest in working for our department. So we were chit-chatting about some of the stuff, you know, and then over my shoulder, I could hear this like a laughing sound. It was like a real deep, almost like a... <laughs> sound and very distant it made the the hair on the back of my neck stand up my arms stand up the driver also heard the same thing so we broke contact and i was like hey i've got to go have a good night so i went back to my cruiser got in moved on up the roadways and pulled in to another road to finish up my paperwork well he pulls in behind me and he gets out and walks up and is standing beside my door and he's like hey i do apologize but I don't know what that was, and I want to make sure that you're safe to finish up the, the traffic stop and make sure you didn't need anything else from me. And I was like, no, I'm good. And he's like, what was that? I was like, I have no idea. And he proceeds to tell me that, you know, he had done a couple tours overseas, um, Iraq and Afghanistan. And he's like, you know, I've never had fear like that in my life. So not sure what it was. I kind of checked the area. There wasn't, wasn't any houses within a five-mile radius of that area. 
And, you know, I kind of looked for some, you know, vehicles for maybe somebody camping out. There was nothing out there. So not sure what it was, but I uh, figured I'd share my story. Thanks for everything you do. Thank you, caller. Before I dive in, I think it's important to point out that a coyote or even a pack of coyotes are quite capable of making sounds that closely resemble a human laugh. In fact, there's a particular recording that has been attributed to Sasquatch activity that I personally think shows just that. Here's a little bit of that clip. January 21st, about 11 p.m. Uh, I'm a couple hundred feet from my house. You can hear it going off in the background right now. Kind of sounds weird. Uh, kind of sounds doggish, hyena-ish. But you can hear it going off in the background right now. It's really kind of strange, just to say the least. Uh, it's been going off for about 15-20 minutes so far. Um, by the fire station. And... Uh, it's pretty crazy, so if you can listen, that'd be crazy. Hold on. I mean, that almost sounds like laughter. That video comes courtesy of Core Sam's on YouTube. Now, many investigators believe the creature heard in this recording is a Sasquatch, but it's my humble opinion that we are simply hearing a coyote, or possibly a pack of coyotes. But like everyone else in the United States, we have an abundance of coyote here on our mountain. I saw one in my yard over the weekend, to be honest. So as you can imagine, I've heard them yipping on dozens of occasions. A few times I've even heard the same sound that was playing in this video. Yet another reason to believe that this sound is actually coyotes and not some sort of bipedal hairy monster. So is it possible that this is what our caller heard that spooky night? Did the atmosphere and remote location trigger our caller's imagination causing him to exaggerate what he heard that evening? Or is it possible that there is something unknown roaming the wilds of Kansas. Its sinister laugh can still be heard echoing over the prairies. Thanks again, caller. And I highly recommend heading over to the show notes at www.monstersamonguspodcast.com forward slash show notes to catch the entire video. Believe it or not, things get even more interesting when someone starts shooting at whatever is making the sounds. Our next submission comes to us from the state of Michigan. The following is Robert's story. Hi, Derek. My name is Robert, and I'm calling in a story for your first responder law enforcement episode that you were soliciting uh, stories for. So I've got a really weird story to share that has stuck with me. My story, uh, I was a law enforcement officer up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula for about uh, for two years, and uh, I was investigating a case. It was a very minor case. I don't remember uh, what, it was, what it was, but uh, I was hoping to talk to a witness to something uh, that happened, and her name was, let's just say, Mary so-and-so. So I looked 
marry so-and-so up in my computer to try to find the phone number for her to reach out and hopefully talk to her in person. I called a couple numbers that obviously, you know, that popped up in the computer that obviously didn't belong to her. And then I finally found one. And when I called, I said, hi, is uh, Mary so-and-so there? And she said, this is her. What can I help you with? And, and I said, you know, hi, hi, Mary, my name is so-and-so. With, and I identified my name in my department and told her why, you know, why I wanted to talk to her. And she said, yeah, no problem. I'd be more than happy to talk to you in person. Uh, she lived in the next town over. She said, I live at such and such address. And I said, okay, Mary, uh, if it's all right with you, I'll be there in 10 minutes to come and talk to you. And she said, uh, yeah, that's great. I will see you shortly. So after I hung up with Mary on the phone, I was running some more people in, in my computer for the case. And I uh, ran Mary again through a different computer database, and it uh, turned out that Mary uh, had some previous run-ins with the law and was wanted by the courts for something. So I had a coworker that was there at the station with me, and uh, I asked, you know, told my coworker what was going on, and, you know, I was going to call Mary to try to make amends on the situation in the best way possible without inconveniencing her too much. Him and I both agreed that's what we would do, but we'd have to talk to her in person about it. And so we agreed we'd go over there and talk to her together. And uh, so I tried to call Mary before we headed out to let her know, you know, what was going on. And so I called the same phone number that I had previously called and spoke to Mary at. Um, A male answered the phone. And I, again, I didn't introduce myself at the very start because, you know, some people, you know, don't like to talk to us initially and then but I I figure you know if I can get them to say who they are at the start then you know they won't be inclined to just hang up on us and ignore us so you know so I I called and a male picked up the phone and I I said hi is Mary there and he said I don't know Mary and I said I just called this number like that five seven minutes ago and I spoke to a Mary and we were going to meet and he said no I don't know a Mary and I said well what is your name sir and he said my name is let's say Frank my name is Frank and I said okay Frank where do you live and he said I live at and he gave me the same address that Mary gave me in my previous call when I spoke to Mary the first time And I said, Frank, I'm looking at my phone. And he said, well, you know, and I I see that I called the very, the same exact number that you have. But the first time I called, I spoke to Mary. And he's like, uh, Frank was like, I don't know who Mary is, sir. I don't even know a Mary. I don't even have a Mary in my life. Frank was was also a little bit younger. And so I said, okay, Frank, um, is it all right if I come over and talk to you? And he said, yeah, sure, come on over. So my partner and I both thinking like, you know, maybe she's, you know, maybe he's covering up for her and they're trying to avoid, you know, she knows that she's in trouble and doesn't want to get in trouble. So maybe she's trying to avoid us and he's covered, you know, helping her out. So my partner and I go over there and we talk to Frank and I could tell Frank's kind of bothered. He's like, you know, just looking at him, he's really like, oh my, like, what is going on? This is crazy. He's even like, He's even saying, what, what, sir, what is going on? This is crazy. I don't even know who Mary is. And, and I said, yeah, I mean, I, we both, my partner and I both think it's weird. Uh, we're just trying to get to the bottom of it. I, and I feel like I should say when my partner and I got there, my partner went to the backside of the house 
because sometimes people that are in trouble know it and they try to avoid us and they'll, they'll run out of the back of the house when we knock on the front door. Just nature of the job, you know, crazy. People, people just, you know, yeah, it is what it is. So we had all ends covered, right? So we're trying, like, you know, we had all ends covered. I mean, I guess it could have happened between the time that we I first spoke to her and the time that my partner and I got to the house, or she could have just took off. But, I, you know, my first conversation with her, I, you know, didn't think that she was even concerned about it. Uh, it didn't seem that way. So Frank's really confused. Frank's wondering what's going on. You know, and I said, hey, Frank, you know, like he, he's a little bit younger, so... You know, checked his ID and he was like, I don't know, he was he was younger, like eighteen, nineteen, I think. And I said, is, "Do you live with anybody else? Are your parents home?" You know, and he said, "No, I'm home alone." And I said, "Okay, well, do you mind if I, you know, talk to your parents?" He said, "Yeah, sure." And so his par- I talked to Frank's parents. Frank's parents said, "You know, we don't even know Mary." So I said to Frank's parents, "Hey, is it okay if Frank accompanies me through the house and my partner and I just take a look around?" And I mean, of course, they were like. Uh, you know, I don't know how, you know, whatever. And I said, look, we're just trying to get to the bottom of this and get this figured out. And they said, yeah, sure. Okay, fine. Uh, Frank's dad ended up coming. He lived right down the road. He ended up coming over and Frank's dad and Frank and my partner and I walked through the whole house, upstairs, downstairs, basement, nothing, no Mary, nothing. You know, everybody's confused. Everybody's like, what the heck, you know? I even asked Frank, and I looked at his call history on his phone, and from his call history, comparing his call history to my call history, it showed that uh, on my phone that I had two calls. The first one, the one that I spoke to Mary, on Frank's number, and then the second number was would have been the time that the second time I called and spoke to Frank when Frank denied knowing Mary. I looked on Frank's phone. Frank's phone showed the second call, and then it also showed the first call. So everything lined up. It was Frank's, apparently, I mean, both calls showed up on both of our phones in our call histories, but Frank denies ever having received a first call when I was asking for Mary. And again, if you recall, when I called, Mary, the female, was the one who picked up the phone right away. So... Everybody was weirded out. My partner, you know, I've thought about it a lot. Um, I've, I recently moved on to a different job, and somebody had asked me the other day about, you know, what's the weirdest thing that ever happened to you working as a police officer? And I thought of this story, and, uh, you know, and like I said, I'd be listening to your podcast. I'm like, wow, this is a perfect opportunity to call it in. So I don't have an explanation. Nobody does. My partner is convinced that Frank was just trying to cover up for for Mary, who was probably his friend, but I've had run-ins with Frank after the fact, and he's like completely, what the heck, I, you know, this is so weird, I have no idea what was going on, just really strange, uh, Derek and listeners, just really strange. So I'd be curious to see what your take is, and if anybody has ever had anything similar happen to them. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed this, and again, I hope to hear your opinion on it. Uh, congratulations on your recent marriage, and have a good one. Bye. Thanks, Robert. This was a fun submission. Of course, as Robert said, if the young man was lying to protect his friend, then all of this could be easily explained. But Robert is a trained observer. His job and life depends on his ability to read people, and I get the impression that he suspected nothing dubious from the young man. 
So what does that leave us with? Electronic malfunction? Crossed wires? A time slip? Your guess is as good as mine with this one. But I will say that the events certainly made for a great story. So thank you again, Robert, for sharing your first responder story. Now next up, we venture to the state of Tennessee. The following submission was sent in by Jeff. Hi Derek, my name is Jeff, long-time listener, first-time caller, as they like to say. And I apologize if the quality's not great. I'm calling you from my car on my way to work because I was listening to an episode and a woman mentioned a big cat story. And I've submitted stories on the website before about some other stuff I've seen, but I decided because it was this is kind of a quick story, it would work well for your show. I was a police dispatcher in Chattanooga, Tennessee. About six years ago, I worked there for about four and a half years. And that call sparked a memory where a person called in. I was a 911 call taker and a police dispatcher. So I remember taking a call or dispatching a call. I think I was on the phone that day. And a man uh, coming down Signal Mountain, which is one of the many mountains around Chattanooga, swore up and down that there was a black panther laying in the roadway. And there, there are some issues with this because... He was on what we call the W Road, which is one of the roads that leads up Signal Mountain, and it's a main a main road that goes up the mountain, so a lot of people travel on it. And he was the only person who called. But I remember talking to him and saying, are you sure it's not just a black cat or it's just a piece of garbage? And he said, no, 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 no. This is a very large black cat in the roadway. He said, it's a black panther. It's a panther-sized animal. You know, I got his information, and, and we disconnected, and I'm sure we sent someone out there, and there wasn't anything present, but I worked second, third, and first shift, so the time of day was probably hazy, but I remember thinking that like, if there was anything like that on the W Road, we'd, we'd have gotten tons of calls, so it must have been during the day. Uh, it could have been an early morning commute or the uh, afternoon commute, but that's a very specific thing to be mistaken about. Now, people, of course, called in all the time with uh, things they thought they saw or mistaken descriptions or identifications, but he was very insistent. And I don't think most people call 911, and even as a call taker, I know this, most people don't call 911 just for a casual prank on their way to work. You did get that occasionally at night, mostly, but and it was usually kids. But I don't know, just the other listeners call and the tone of voice of this guy just insisting, no, this isn't just a regular sized cat, it's not trash on the road, it's not a piece of tire off of like a big rig. They don't even they don't go up the W road as far as I know, there'd be no way. There's too many cutbacks. So if you didn't see a large dark cat, one of these you know, mysterious big cats that we get in the state sometimes, well what did he see? Well thanks for the show. I love listening to it. And uh maybe I'll call back and actually do a voice description on some of the other stuff I've seen, uh, rather than putting it on the website. But thanks again. I appreciate the submission, Jeff. All the way back in the first season, I did a special on 911 calls. Surprisingly, it was quite difficult to put that together. There's just not a lot of 911 calls available that discuss elements of the paranormal. But I wanted to find something here to share with you, so I started doing some digging. I went down a 911 rabbit hole, and even though I may never sleep again, I think I found something super rare, and I'd like you to hear it. 
The following 911 call comes from the Traverse City 911 Dispatch in Michigan and seems to describe a creature most know as the Dogman. For Vance Stringham, it's the legend of Dogman, who many believe stalked the forests of Michigan that triggers the memory of what he describes as one of the craziest 911 calls he has ever answered. And Traverse 901, where is your emergency? I can pretty much almost guarantee that Dogman is outside of my window in the back down by the city right. Immediately you're thinking, yeah, okay, yeah, you saw the Dogman. And uh, I could tell by her tone of voice, she was actually seeing something, so I wanted to get through what she was actually seeing. That's okay. Listen, I believe you. It was, first it was running like, like on a time, time, like, you know, on all fours. Uh-huh. First thing it was run that fast on all fours. She could hear it. I mean, she was starting to cry. She was so afraid and all this. She believed it. She, in her mind, she saw the dog man. The dog man that turned out to be a fake. The caller's boyfriend playing a cruel prank. In her mind, it was a matter of life and death, but other callers don't have that experience. I know, it was a bit of a cop-out, but this call was buried in a news story about 911 pranks and misuses, and I figured, even though it is now solved, it's probably an important piece of cryptid history. Plus, as far as I'm concerned, it's the only 911 dogman call that's available to the public. Oh, and I should mention that that clip comes courtesy of Up North Live on YouTube. Thank you again, Jeff, for sharing your story. Oh, and if anyone out there listening has access to more spooky 911 calls, please do me a favor and get a hold of me. Speaking of getting a hold of me, if you have a story you would like to share, simply call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or visit the website for more submission options. And on that note, we move on to our next submission of the evening. The following was submitted by Scott in the state of California. Hi, Derek. My name's Scott. I'm a longtime firefighter in a medium-sized California town, up in central California to be exact. When I first started with the department um, almost 30 years ago, I found out about our haunted fire station. The firefighters at the time called it the nightmare station. They said that the firefighters that worked there would often have extremely vivid nightmares. One older captain told me a bunch of spooky stories about sleeping in the dorm room and hearing footsteps in his bed, hearing the cupboards in the kitchen opening and closing when no one was in there, having the TV turn on in the middle of the night, and having our large engine bay door opening on its own. The station itself was built in 1975, so it's really not that old, and nobody's ever died there. Um, the guys at the time theorized that the dreams and noises came from the station being built right next to an electrical substation. When I started working there, the dreams started right away. I've always been an active dreamer, and I even keep a dream diary, but these dreams were extremely vivid. Um, one time I was sleeping there, and it was just me and, and a captain, and uh, I was dreaming that I'd killed some people, and I was trying to bury their bodies. This is not a normal dream for me. Anyway, I was awakened by the seven o'clock morning tones which they set off to get us up and moving i laid there just thinking about the dream and i yelled across to my captain i said hey captain i had the craziest dream where i dreamt that i killed some people and i was trying to bury their bodies and uh, he yelled back oh my god 
I dreamt the exact same thing. Now, this was from an old, crusty guy that did not really believe or talk about any of this stuff. And from what I hear, he still talks about that to this day, even though he's long gone. Um, I remember the TV being turned on in the middle of the night. I remember the engine bay door opening on its own, which is scary enough because we don't want a strange person walking in from off the street. Uh, But the scariest thing that I ever experienced there was about maybe 20 years ago. I was working there with a captain and a reserve firefighter, and all three of us were in the dorm, all side by side in our beds. We were all reading in bed, and I heard my captain snoring. I looked over and and started laughing because he was sleeping with his arms up in the air. And uh, anyway, I left him like that. I turned off my light and went to bed. Shortly after that, I woke up with the deepest fear I've ever felt in my life. I opened my eyes and looked up, and there was this white, skeleton-like face right in my face. It was obviously evil. I felt like it was trying to get me. It just—it looked like I had a veil on. And I looked to my left, and my captain was still sleeping, but his arms had come down and were now on his chest. That's what you know leads me to feel like this was not a dream. And anyway, I looked back up, and it was gone, and I didn't sleep the rest of the night. Um, I had a ton of scary dreams, and even an alien-type abduction dream while I was working there. I heard piano noises, piano keys in the middle of the night, and a lot of other bumps and noises. My wife saw an apparition walk across the engine bay in the daytime, and another captain reported the same thing. I was having a nightmare one night, and I opened my eyes when I woke up, and a large corrugated fluorescent light cover fell from the ceiling right near my head and smashed all over. So I finally moved out of there, worked at another station for 10 years. In the meantime, we hired a bunch of other younger firefighters as the older ones retired. And then, um, of course, the new story started right up. Guys were having dreams, thrashing in their sleep all night, seeing human-shaped flashes of light right in our hallway. I rotated back into the station about two and a half years ago, and things were pretty quiet up until recently. Then I started having the nightmares again, including one that was just so incredibly terrifying that it left me physically shaking for most of the following day um just last week we came back from a call got back in bed and uh, the dorm room since has been divided into three private rooms and as i laid back down i heard a huge crash in the engine bay and uh through the window from my room to the engine bay the motion detector light did not go on even though it's super sensitive and i said heck no i'm not going out there anyway we had another call a little while later and we all talked about how we heard it and then when we came back we found a large antique fire engine spotlight had fallen off the shelf with glass all over the floor really no reason for that to happen i've also seen glimpses of people in the station hallway and and just a lot of other strange noises i'm planning on retiring soon but i'm trying to get a psychic friend of mine to come by the station for a visit to see what she feels anyway i'm a nut for all things paranormal and it's been kind of neat working there all of our other stations have different levels of activity and some of us theorize that we bring back a lot of negative energy from the calls that we constantly go on I also think that maybe some of the deceased firefighters may be attached to the places where they worked for so long. Anyway, thanks for listening to my story. I plan on calling back with many more. I lived in several haunted houses and have a lot of other good stories to share. Take care. Thank you, Scott. You know, Scott's call got me thinking. I wonder if haunted firehouses are a common occurrence, which led me to FireRescue1.com's Top 10 List of Most Haunted Fire Stations in the United States. So like Casey Kasem, we're counting them down to the top. Number 10, Long Beach Engine Company number 12 out of Long Beach, California. Number 9, Engine House number 35 out of Milwaukee. Number 8 is Fire Station number 3 out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. 
And number seven is Fire Station number 11 out of El Paso. Number six, ironically, is Fire Station number nine, also out of El Paso. So if you're a fireman, I highly recommend moving away from El Paso. And our top five is Station number four out of Lexington, Kentucky. Number four is a Fire Station number three in Frankfort, Illinois. Number three is Fire Engine Company number 107 out of Chicago. Number two is station number one out of Denver, Colorado. And the number one most haunted firehouse in the United States goes to the Chesapeake Beach Volunteer Fire and Rescue Station, number four in Virginia Beach, Virginia. So who knew there were so many haunted firehouses? Although, given the activity that the inhabitants of these firehouses partake in, is anyone really surprised? Thank you again, Scott, for taking the time. Now you guys are probably tired of me teasing this, but I'm happy to announce that there is finally light at the end of the tunnel. On Tuesday, March 10th, David Flora of Blurry Photos and myself will be launching our Kickstarter campaign for our upcoming project, Shadows in the Desert, High Strangeness, and the Borrego Triangle. To learn more about this project, be sure to check out the campaign page. Now that thing's not live yet, but it will be here in the next few days. So swing back and check the show notes later this week or visit our social media pages for that link. Now, in addition, David and I will be guests on several different paranormal podcasts over the next two weeks. Our interview with Shannon LeGros at Into the Fray has already dropped. We have upcoming appearances with Expanded Perspectives, Hysteria 51, Hillbilly Horror Stories, and Mad Scientist Podcast. If you like weird paranormal stories, do yourself a favor. Check out those guest spots and head up to Kickstarter on March 10th. Now our next tale tonight also comes from a fireman. This call was submitted anonymously from Parts Unknown. In the town I live in, we recently built a new hospital. I work for the city as a firefighter, so one night we got called to the old hospital for an alarm. This wasn't too uncommon because people were breaking in to see what was all left behind. When we got there, PD said it looked like some kids got in and were discharging fire extinguishers. We still had to do a check of the building to make sure there was nothing else. My partner and I were checking one of the lower levels when we heard laughter and footsteps. We radioed to the officers that we might have someone in the basement. We all did a complete check of the basement level and found no one, so figured they must have got away. It was about two months later when we were asked to assist in clearing out some of the furniture and things that were left behind. That day, we met up with the maintenance man that had been put in charge of the project. We were making small talk with him, and he was telling us about how long he had worked there and how the place changed over the years. One of the volunteers that was helping made a comment about how creepy it was being there. The maintenance guy then said all kinds of strange things have happened, and he started to tell us about them as we were working. I decided to ask him if he'd ever heard any giggling or footsteps, thinking back to the call I responded to a few months back. He replied back with, oh yeah, happens all the time in the basement area, and told us that he'd always hear them in one area right by the small auditorium that was there. As soon as he said that, I looked at my partner who was standing there white as can be, because that was the same area we were in that night. We've been called back to the hospital a few times, and my partner and I still get the chills and slightly freaked out when we're in that part of the basement. Thank you, caller. And a huge thank you to Warren Pon Abbott for volunteering his vocal talents to this story. 
Honestly, I'm surprised at the lack of submissions by security guards and night watchmen. Perhaps most don't consider that a first responder position. But I think, at least in the interest of collecting these stories, we should accept it. Great story, caller. Thank you for taking the time to submit it. And speaking of taking time, do me a solid and take time to check out Monsters Among Us Beyond over on Patreon. Twice a month I release a new Patreon-exclusive episode. The latest to drop was the third installment of the Season 8 Hometown Legends season finale. So visit Patreon.com and search for Monsters Among Us Podcast. A $4 monthly pledge gets you access to literally everything. Cancel whenever you want. Alright, so our next submission comes to us in the written form, all the way from the state of Arizona. I am a retired police officer from Tempe, Arizona. Years ago, around 2002, I was a patrol officer. I worked midnight shift in the south section of town. In my beat area, the city had a very large park with a man-made lake. The park closed at 10 p.m. every night. It was not uncommon for people to be in the park after hours. Often people would fish or just hang out or do whatever people do at night in the park. During that year, I had several calls for service from people in the park who were terrified. They always reported seeing a tall man wearing a dark-colored full habit and hood. He was always reported near the lake or on the canal adjacent to the park. I was the dispatched officer often on these calls. When I would arrive, strangely, the park was always void of people and witnesses and the subject was never located. Several of the calls often reported the subject dragging a woman while she screamed and cried. I was never able to locate the victim or the subject for the call for service. I can recall one call in particular. I believe it was in December or the end of November. Several officers were dispatched to the park to investigate a subject dragging a woman wearing a hood and cloak. Officers arrived and it was actually located near the canal approximately 100 yards from the arriving officer. As soon as the subject was located, it vanished. No splashing was heard. The subject did not swim. He was just gone. It was also very cold. I believe swimming a canal would not have been a first option of escape. The interesting thing about these calls is they always seem to correlate with unattended death investigations. These investigations are not uncommon. Many times in the night, people die from natural causes in their home and they are discovered by loved ones. The police are contacted, and the scene must be treated like a homicide scene until a natural death can be determined. Eventually, these calls stopped, and I went on and took a patrol job during a second shift in the same area. One day, in the middle of an Arizona summer, I noted a very pale person sitting at the bus stop. What caught my eye was the outfit. The outfit was a very heavy, hooded, dark monk habit. The person was sitting with the hood up around his face. The hood was so large I could not tell the sex of the person. I stopped in my patrol car and made contact with the strange person. The person would not look at me nor conversate. Since no laws were broken, I was limited to my contact. I made several attempts to communicate and got nothing. I had to walk away. One of the strangest incidents of my police career. Thanks for letting me share. Well, thank you for that submission. I gotta give it to this witness. This is the exact type of story I expected to get when I first put the call to action out there. 
This is one of those classic police meets ghost stories. So thank you, caller, for taking the time to share it with us. Now before I tear into the back half of this collection, I need to ask you for a quick favor. Please leave the show a 5-star rating and a nice review on your platform of choice. I'm not smart enough to understand the algorithm apps like Apple Podcasts use, but I do know that the more reviews, the more people are introduced to the show, and in turn, the more calls I have to share with you guys. So thank you for leaving that rate and review today. Alright, you better buckle up because the next few calls are out of this world. To kick this section off, we begin with Erica in the state of Texas. Hi Derek, this is Erica from Texas. This story is related to your first responder request. So the story is not my own, this is actually my dad's. He was a trooper with Texas DPS and eventually made it all the way up um, in the ranks. But this story is from when he first started and was still working the roads. So he told me this story happened um, in the 90s and he was working the night shift, which is usually uh, 10 p.m. to like 6 a.m. So he was out on a rural road in Texas and it was only him and another trooper on the roads at this night. So he had parked on a small highway more out in the back, you know, backwoods, Texas, I guess. And he was sitting in a car stalled with his lights off. He said that the weather was clear, that it was a calm night in the middle of winter, but best part of Texas doesn't get any snow. So conditions were fair, you know, no problems. And he was waiting on the back road for a car to come along or a call to go out so he could respond. His car was off um, besides his radio, and he was parked alongside the road, and his windows were cracked just to keep airflow. And all of a sudden, he said that his radio started going in and out, which he said was kind of common, but not really, um, because they're supposed to maintain constant radio frequency. He said his radio started cutting in and out, and he just so happened to look above him. And when he looked above him, he said that his entire vision of the sky was filled and he couldn't see anything. It was just jet black, which is odd because in the middle of Texas on a clear night, you should be able to see every star in the sky. He said that it was jet black. He couldn't see anything. And then when his eyes started to adjust, he realized that what he was seeing in the sky was moving above him. And he said he continued to watch and what he could only describe as some sort of UFO. And he said it was triangular in shape. And as it moved across him, um, it was triangular. And as the object continued above him, he finally saw the tail end of it. And on the two back corners of the craft were blinking lights. And he said it couldn't have been any aircraft because it was triangular in shape and it was making absolutely no noise. Besides his radio going in and out, he had no indication that there was anybody else around him in the area on this back road. Um, when he looked up, he continued watching it and it hovered and then just continued slowly gliding forward, making absolutely zero noise. 
he tried to contact uh, his partner that was in a different part of the county at the time, but couldn't get the signal to stay strong enough and couldn't hear any communication coming back. And his partner later told him that night that he never received a call from him and they had little communication throughout the night. My dad is an avid skeptic. He doesn't believe in this sort of thing, whereas I have always believed in extraterrestrials and anything conspiracy related or out of this world. For him, he says that he thought it was some sort of military aircraft because we are located near a military base and a major uh, airport. But that's all I got. Thank you for creating such an amazing podcast, and I hope you enjoyed my story. Thank you, Erica. Coincidentally, Erica's call jarred a memory loose in the old noggin. My grandfather and mother used to tell me a story about the time they chased a UFO in a police car. You see, my grandfather was the chief of police in my tiny town growing up, a position my brother would end up taking some 30 years later. Well, instead of me butchering this story, I gave my mom a call and asked her to share Grandpa's UFO story. So for the first time since the very first episode, please welcome my mom Holly back to the show. This is her experience from the state of Ohio. Hi, I've got a story to tell. Back in the early 1970s, around 72, 73, I was a small girl around 12 years old in a small town in southeastern Ohio. My dad was the local law enforcement. At that time and date, we had a telephone that came directly to our home for 911 system back then. So we've got a call that a local farmer, about approximately a mile, mile and a half out of the small town, had spotted something very strange in his cornfield up above. He described it to my dad as something that was very lit up and kind of made a humming noise. So my dad, being the local law enforcement, was uh, in the cruiser uh, on the way out there, and he offered us a ride with him to go witness or go see what was going on in this farmer's field. We loaded up in the back seat of the cruiser and we sped off to the local farmer's area. We got very close to the area and we could see many lights up in the sky. Uh, they seemed to file like in a straight line. They were very, very bright and they almost had a, a glow about them. As we got closer, the lights got brighter. The lights got a little bit more rounder, a little bit more glowing. We did go directly where the farmer had uh, spotted this object. We heard a loud humming noise, almost uh, humming enough to vibrate the back window of the police cruiser where we were riding. As we got closer to the, the object uh, in the sky, it seemed to like dart off. Not very far, just far enough for us to notice that it was moving. Um, my dad at the time moved with the object. We followed the object throughout the farmer's area, the back road. Um, we came back into our town that we lived in. We followed it up near the high school. We followed it all through town. It just went to different areas. And it almost was to the point where it waited on us to get to that area where it was hovering. We chased more or less this object many places in town. We was fascinated by it. The lights were just 
so glowing and so hypnotizing that we continued to watch. We got to a area up past our local high school and the object was there and then all of a sudden it just darted off. I don't know if it went higher, I don't know if it went off to the right, but it just started off in the darkness. And we looked for a few more minutes to see if we could see it anywhere else in the sky and it was gone. It would just it would just like playing a game with us. It just followed we followed it and it you know waited on us to catch up with it. We finally decided after at least an hour, an hour and a half of observing this item or object in the sky, we went back home and my mom at the time was here and she was the one that answered the calls that came into the police department. And at that particular time, my mom said that they had over uh, 10 to 15 calls about this object in the sky. Even to this day, my dad, you know, he's a little bit older now. He describes that as the UFO. He feels that's what that was. It was something, uh, was not a plane. It was too small to be a plane. We just talked about this um, object in the sky for years and years and years. The sound of the, the object, uh, we said it was like a very loud humming noise, you know, just like a thousand bees or even a million bees buzzing all at one time. When we have family get-togethers to this day, we still talk about the ride that we got to do with my dad in order to see this large object in the sky. I still live in this small town that I grew up in for most of my life. I've not ever seen anything like it before. My dad tells a tale, or he calls it a tale, that uh, he witnessed a, a UFO in his uh, years of law enforcement. So so I just wanted to share this story um, with you to this day. You know, it's still a mystery to us. We're not sure what we witnessed, uh, why it played uh, cat and mouse with us is what I'll say. But it was uh, something that we had witnessed here in uh, about 1972. Thank you very much and uh, have a good day. I remember the first time I heard that story. We were driving home from my grandparents on Christmas night. And I remember seeing Christmas lights pass by the window which made my anxiety level go through the roof. Now, as most of you know, I try to do a little research on every call I receive. Sometimes I'm more successful than others. But in researching Erica's call, I stumbled upon a story out of the state of Minnesota that I'd never heard before. So you know that I'm going to share it with you guys. The following comes courtesy of WCCO NBC News 4 out of Minneapolis. Worldwide attention. What he saw was a bright object, maybe like a foot diameter, about three and a half feet off the ground. It was along a rural highway on August 27, 1979, in the middle of the night. Marshall County Deputy Val Johnson was alone on patrol. As he explained it in the news reports, what was there all of a sudden was here, so the light just shot at him and it you know, like engulfed his car in light and you know, blinded him. 36 years later, the deputy's squad car is still what brings most people in to the Marshall County Museum. And then, of course, the windshield is uh, broken, something you can see where it hit. Herb Morstead was a fellow that's deputy that's at the time, at a loss to explain the antennas warped in different directions, the broken headlight and the dented hood. Whatever happened, there was evidence. The dashboard clock stopped for 14 minutes, as did Deputy Johnson's watch before starting up again. You can see that it wasn't Val Johnson's head, for example, that hit there because it's in the wrong 
wrong place. Too low. Yep, way too low. Doesn't mean it's from outer space. It's just an unidentified flying object hit it, and it just hasn't been explained, so it's unidentified. Deputy Johnson was treated for welder-type burns to his eyes. This didn't seem to be any airplane, not way faster than something like that. His supervisor at the time was Sheriff Dennis Brecky. We uh, do believe that our deputy had an encounter with something that we haven't been able to explain yet on this date, and there's uh, a lot of interest because of that. The Internet has brought about new interest over the past several years. Conspiracy theorists are still trying to solve what law enforcement, mechanical inspectors, and the Center for UFO Studies could not. I don't know what happened. I did. I know in my own mind I did the best job we could at me and my department to investigate and find out what went on, and all we found out is we don't know. Do you believe in UFOs? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of do. There's got to be something more than us around. Now, as for Deputy Val Johnson, he is now retired and living in western Wisconsin. I reached him by phone, and he said there's already so much information out there, he really prefers not to talk about this anymore. The museum housing the squad car is in the town of Warren, Minnesota. It's closed for the season, but they'll let people in by appointment. I certainly don't claim to know about every UFO encounter that's taken place over the years. But you'd think I would have heard of a story about a craft crashing into a cop car. And now, after having heard it, I think it's safe to say that Steven Spielberg heard about this right before he started working on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Clearly, that was an inspiration for that film. A big thank you to both Erica and my mom for sharing those submissions. That concludes our UFO segment of this special. But rest assured, there's plenty more spooky left to go around. And to prove it, here is a brand new submission from an anonymous source in the state of California. A little warning, though. The details of this story are a bit gruesome, to say the least. Here is that call. Hey there, Derek. I'm just calling in today. I heard you're asking for first responder stories. I am myself uh, a first responder. I'm just an EMT out here in Northern California. But this is not my story. It's actually the story of one of my instructors while I was in school. This story happened uh, approximately four years ago during the summer from what I can remember from uh, hearing this story from my instructor. It's when he was volunteering with um, our local fire department. Just a forewarning, it is a relatively gruesome story. So. Um, viewer discretion advised, obviously. Um, but the way that he described this story to me is that he went out on a call and showed up to an apartment complex. And the only reason I remember that this was a summer is because is the reason that this call came in is that there was a bad smell coming from one of the apartments and one of the other people that lived next door called it in. And so they showed up, they reached down the door and went inside and were immediately assailed by this terrible smell that was reported. They found the man there who uh, was deceased at this point. And what seemed to have happened was that he had took a, uh, a, a serrated knife and slipped through his own neck cutting through his carotid vein and his jugular vein, as well as most of his windpipe. And his head was just barely hanging on by uh, basically a skin flap. But what was most surprising to him and most shocking to him 
was that this person still had uh, a viable vital sign, which he uh, wouldn't expect uh, wouldn't expect him to have being in the condition that he was in. My instructor went on to explain, you know, that there was blood everywhere. And during this uh, presentation that my instructor was giving, we were able to see these, these photos. And what it had looked like is that the first knife that he had tried to slit his throat with uh, was too dull, but it managed to get partway through his neck. And so he had actually stood up, walked across the room, and you can see in these photos, blood strewn across the floor with bloody footprints leading over to the knife block to where he set down the original knife and picked up the serrated knife and then uh, finished the job. He was unconscious, but he still had a pulse and he still had a respiratory rate. You know, obviously he was brain dead because there was no oxygen and no blood getting to his brain, but because he had vital signs you're, you're required to transport them. So my instructor and uh, the other firefighters loaded this patient up uh, onto the gurney and transported him to the nearest hospital. And then obviously, uh, once they uh, got to the hospital, he was pronounced dead at the scene. And, you know, there, he was too far gone. There was nothing that they could do for him. But yeah, so I just wanted to give you that call. And that's definitely one of the more disturbing calls. I just wanted to share that with you, and uh, I hope you uh, have a good day. All right. Bye. Thank you, caller. That is a brutal story. It really makes you feel for anyone that's fallen that far, that they'd be that desperate. Just sad. Either way, we appreciate the story. But this is one instance where I'm very happy that the caller no longer has access the photographs thank you again now our next story was also submitted anonymously this time from the state of Texas hey Derek this is for your first responder um, I'll keep my name and stuff out of it because I still work as a corrections officer this happened back in about 1999-2000 I work in a large county jail in Texas it was around 8 o'clock at night. We were called over to a tank by our outside trustees. They were very shaken up. Four or five guys in the cell were very, very shaken up. They said that they had saw a woman walk by on the run around the cell. There was no other female on the floor that night. So I called my corporal over, and the corporal, who had been there for several years, figured out that the description that they gave her of what she was wearing was what the inmates had wore back in the late 60s, early 70s. And come to find out, she knew of a female that hung herself on that floor and died. So I know you wanted some first responder calls. So there you go. Thank you, caller. Honestly, I'm surprised we don't hear more about prisons and jails being haunted. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Large crowds of people in heightened emotional states. If what they say is true, and places with lots of human activity are more likely to produce paranormal activity than others, then these institutions are probably crawling with the ghosts of those incarcerated years ago. Thank you again, caller, for sharing that call. I especially like that someone was able to recognize the Spectre's uniform. 
And just like that, we've reached our final call of the season 9 premiere. This submission is spooky. I'm not sure what to make of it, but I can confirm that it is a good one. The following was submitted by Danny in my state of California. Hey Derek, this is uh, Danny from California again. I went to a wedding last year in Lake Tahoe. It was uh, August 2018. My friend Jimmy and Angelica's wedding. Uh, we have the last names because this relates to actually Jimmy. So we were at the rehearsal dinner the night before at one of the breweries in Lake Tahoe. And uh, we were all sitting around. It was probably 11 o'clock at night, uh, kind of the, the winding down of uh, just hanging out together before the big day the next day. And Jimmy is a uh, cop from San Diego. I won't name his actual specific location in San Diego since it's a big place. But he was like, hey, do you believe in ghosts? And I was like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I believe in ghosts. I mean, like, I have a healthy skepticism towards it. But at the same time, like, I, I would like to believe. Uh, and anyway, he pulled out his phone and he had two surveillance videos from the jail that he works at. And uh, I don't know how whether he had downloaded them or, or whether he was just taking a, a video of the screen surveillance uh, to get them on their phone. They looked very good, though. Um, and the first one was they were processing a woman who had been arrested, and they're processing her to be actually taking in, taken into the, you know, the holding cell. And she had her hands handcuffed behind her back. And in the video, you can see little pieces of her hair start to move like upwards and then she's yanked down and she falls on the ground and there are four or five different officers who are around her like on their knees trying to like get her back up but also get whatever is pulling her hair to be released and I have to be honest uh, while I was immediately intrigued and got a little you know chill down my spine I also kind of thought it was BS, like he was pulling this from a movie or something like that. And I was like, oh, I was like, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't believe you, Jimmy. Like, prove that to me. I know it's, it's on a video, but it's not, you know, anything uh, that you couldn't have, you know, pulled off the internet. And he's like, look at the timestamp. This is my jail. And I was like, okay, that's pretty, pretty reasonable. And he said, but look at this one. And he's, you know, flips his iPhone to the next screen, which was uh, just a like midnight video. It was uh, one or two in the morning, it seems like, um, and all of the cells were closed. But apparently uh, at the jail that he works at, there is a cell block that has a lot of vacancies uh, in terms of, I think it's being re uh, reconstructed or under, under some sort of renovation. And uh, there is a... Um, door that is open and very very slowly it, it closes and I was like well it could just be you know some sort of like automated um, door like there's a malfunction or whatever and he was like there's no motors in those doors like there's nothing that's connecting them to closing and I'll be like, okay, okay it could be a draft and he was like no like this is just one of the videos like this happens very frequently and it's only this door uh, in the, the jail that like shuts and slides shut uh, anyway uh, Jimmy strikes me as someone that is 
incredible. I've known him for 20 years now. Uh, he's incredibly straight-laced, I guess is the word. I mean, he's a cop. He doesn't really have a lot of time to, in his mind anyway, to entertain these sorts of supernatural things. Anyway, it's just stuck with me for the last year, and I thought I'd share it. So I'd like to know anyone's thoughts and your thoughts too, Derek. Take care. Bye. Thank you, Danny. What a creepy story. Now that is some footage I would want to see. My initial thought when hearing the story is how did the officers react? I'm sure they're all used to people coming up with insane reasons why they can't be jailed. Why wouldn't they assume that this would be more of the same? But at a certain point, it sounds like the officers realized something odd was taking place. So how did they react then? Did they continue to monitor her while she was in her cell? I'll tell you what, the story has raised so many questions for me. Maybe a listener out there can answer a few of those. And while you're at it, maybe take a crack at a few of these as well. Is there a movie that shows a similar scene? Maybe Danny's initial suspicion was correct. Maybe this was a clip from my film. I'd also want to know if anyone else has heard this story, or perhaps laid eyes on the footage. I realize it's a long shot, but you never know. There may be a listener out there that was in the room that day. Despite all the questions, I thoroughly enjoyed the submission, Danny. So thank you for spending the time to send it to us. Now before I sign off, I just want to quickly thank tonight's callers for their stories and for their service. I come from a family of first responders. My grandfather, uncle, brother, and cousin were all officers. My mom was an EMT for a very long time, and I know several firefighters, both volunteer and professionally. So I understand the sacrifices these brave people make. So a huge thank you to each and every first responder out there, making our lives safer. We are very grateful. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Addie Lloyd and Warren Pon Abbott. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. That terrifying score that you're hearing? Well, that's co.ag. Thank you so much for listening, and until next week. So tonight's secret story is very long. That said, the following was submitted anonymously from the state of Texas. Hi Derek, I love the podcast and hearing of all the submissions. I made my first a couple of weeks ago and was very excited when I saw you put out the request for stories slash encounters from first responders. So I've decided to share one of mine. Since I'm still active law enforcement, I would rather not have my name revealed. 
and I will just use initials for the others in this account, as well as omitting specific locations. So let's get started. I started my career with the U.S. Border Patrol over 20 years ago, here in South Texas. Being federal agents, a lot of people outside the border regions don't necessarily think of us as first responders. However, in sparsely populated rural counties like I work in, we are the largest law enforcement agency and as such are usually the first on the scene of accidents, brush fires, and other calls for assistance from the state and county levels. My encounter took place back in February of 2003 as a response to a call from a county dispatch. My partner, we will refer to him as D, and I were on duty that night, working the graveyard shift from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. when we got a call over the radio. A passing motorist had called and said they had almost hit what they assumed to be a family, a man, woman, and child, walking along the shoulder of a dark farm-to-market road. They said they were concerned for the safety since the road was not well lit, the area they were walking was a blind curve, and the child appeared to be wearing shorts and a t-shirt in the cold weather. Yes, it does get down to the 30s in South Texas, especially in January and February. The caller also said that when they went back to look for them and offer help, they couldn't find them and they assumed they must have run into the brush. Since we are the closest unit to the area, Dee and I responded to the location to see if we could find anyone there. We cruised back and forth through the stretch of road, using the alley light in our vehicle to light up the brush line of the road to see if they had taken shelter off the road. But we couldn't come up with anything. I have to add that while the brush was quite thick on the south side of the road, the north side was predominantly pastures, with the brush line pushed a good quarter mile off the road. On our last pass, I was scanning the south side from the passenger seat. Dee was driving and looking to the north. Suddenly, he stopped and said he thought he had seen someone on the north side. He turned around and parked the truck and got out to take a look. Out in the pasture to the north, maybe a hundred yards off the road, sat an old abandoned ranch house. Dee said he thought he had seen someone near the corner of the house, so we grabbed our flashlights and climbed the fence to take a look. As we got about 20 yards from the house, we both saw what appeared to be a boy, maybe eight or nine years old, looking at us from around the corner of the house. As we got even closer, he stepped into full view, and sure enough, appeared to be wearing shorts in this weather. As I called out to him to see if he was all right, he smiled and then turned away from us, walking off. I then ran toward him, and Dee proceeded to cut around the opposite side of the house, thinking he would either cut him off or I would catch up to him. I made it to the southern corner of the house, where we first spotted him, just in time to see him around the north end of the house and out of my view. As I continued on and rounded the north end of the house, I came face to face with Dee, who had come from the opposite end. We ran into each other, then stepped back looking at each other. Dee asked me where the kid was, and I told him I was right behind him when he rounded this corner, asking Dee if he'd seen him. When he said no, we both stood there, looking at each other for a bit trying to figure out what had happened. Now the brush line was still 50 to 60 yards north of us, and there was no way a small child could have covered that amount of ground in the one or two seconds he was out of my view. So we thought maybe he had holed up in the house. We began circling the old residence looking for a way in, but the place was boarded up. We did find one broken out window with a loose board over it, so we got in there to take a look around. Nothing. No sign of a person being there for years. 
but plenty of evidence of small animals, raccoons and such. Once back out, Dee and I decided to see if we could find any foot sign of the child or the rest of the family he was supposedly seen with. Now Dee and I were what is affectionately known as brush dogs, meaning our abilities to track people through the inhospitable brushlands of South Texas was well above average. We lived for tracking out in the ranches, the ultimate game of hide-and-seek, but damned if we couldn't find anything. We made systematic cuts in circles, started from the perimeter of the house, then arching out further and further until we hit the brush line, searching for footprints in the sandy soil, or a grass trail or something to indicate where they went. We could not find a thing, and after a good hour, we headed back to our ride. Once back in the truck, we sat in silence for a little bit, trying to figure out what happened while we warmed back up from the cold. Dee was the first to broach the subject, asking me if I thought something seemed off about the kid. I told him I did, and I thought about it for a bit, trying to put my finger on what it was that struck me about him. I finally told Dee what it was that bothered me about it. The way he smiled at us before he turned away, there was nothing malevolent about it. In fact, the exact opposite. It was the innocent smile of a child playing a game. It just didn't fit with the circumstances. By that, I mean the isolated area, the cold and damp weather, and the darkness of the night. Most people that we find in this area, or even walking down the side of this desolate stretch of road, are happy to be found by us, even if they are going to be deported. But they get out of the elements, get a meal, medical treatment if needed, etc. It is a much better alternative than dying alone in an unfamiliar country, due to the harsh elements. Families especially find relief in us taking them into custody, rather than entertain the thought of their child perishing out here. But this was so different and strange. Plus, where were the adults that had been traveling with them? After discussing it for quite some time, we put it to rest, never really coming to a conclusion, or at least one that either of us were willing to share aloud. We finished our shift and didn't really talk about it again. Over the course of the next few weeks, there would be several other reports of this nature from various motorists, always the same blind curve on the same stretch of road with the same description of people. Every report ended in the same response from the units involved. Negative contact with the subject reported. One of the last nights working graveyards before we rotated to the day shift for six weeks, I was paired up with an old, salty agent who had been stationed there his entire career. We will refer to him as G. That night, another report came over the radio. Same traffic, same location, same description. As I sat there listening to another unit acknowledge the call and say that they were responding, G chuckled and said, Good luck, boys. They ain't gonna find nothing out there. You can't catch a damn ghost. As he looked over at me grinning, his expression changed. I must have been pale or something because he studied me for a minute and asked if I was all right. I stammered for a second, then said, Yeah, I'm good. G continued to look at me for a minute. Then... The slightest smile crept on his face, and he said, You've seen him, haven't you? I acted as if I had no idea what he meant, and told him no. G laughed and said, Boy, I've been breaking criminals and liars longer than you've been alive. It's a good thing you're on this side of the badge, because you're a terrible liar. Now tell me you've seen him, ain't you? After a bit, I recounted the experience that D and I had a few weeks prior. After I told him, G sat back in the driver's seat and told me that he'd seen him too, years ago, and that plenty of others had as well. It just wasn't something that got talked about. 
He then told me how the encounters had started. Apparently, years before I had ever started my career, there actually had been a family, mom, dad, and son, walking down the shoulder of this road at night. Unfortunately, a vehicle coming around this blind curve ventured into the shoulder of the road, striking and killing all three on the spot. The sighting started a few years after that. But as I said, no one really talks about it. From time to time, some of us who have seen them may discuss it among ourselves after a few beers at quote-unquote choir practice, which is what we call it after we have a few drinks after work. But on the whole, it isn't something that is broadcast for fear of ridicule. Now as a supervisor, I spend most of my time in the office, reviewing reports and taking care of other administrative duties. But I'm still always listening to the radio traffic, and every so often you hear a report of a family of three walking on the farm-to-market road, followed by the voice of an often young, eager agent responding. It brings a little smile to my face, and I think about what G said. Good luck, boys. You ain't gonna find nothing. So that's my experience. Take it for what it's worth. But I know what D and I saw that night, and what happened. Keep up the good work. I love listening on my commute back and forth to work. Well, thank you, caller, for sharing that terrifying tale. This is exactly the sort of story I expected to hear on this special. So thank you again for sharing that. And thank you for sticking around to the end of the program. Have a great night. <laughs>